Do you have questions about recreational marijuana in Ohio? We have answers. If you have questions about Cleveland's participatory budgeting, we have answers for that too. Two of the top stories we'll be talking about on Today in Ohio. It's the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Laura Johnston, Layla Tassi, and Lisa Garvin. I know the audience is hungry for this marijuana discussion. It's been tops on our stories whenever we publish it. Let's go. As I said, people have a lot of questions about legalizing recreational marijuana, which they'll consider on Election Day in just five weeks. Chief among them is how has legalization worked in states that already did it? Laura Hancock has some answers. Layla, what are they? Laura broke this down by multiple subjects. And first, she took a look at the question of how weed affects tra- traffic crash data. She found that in places where recreational marijuana is legal, more drivers involved in injury crashes tested positive for weed. Now, it's important to note, I think, that you can test positive for weed 36 hours after consuming it. It doesn't necessarily mean you're impaired in that moment. But the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety also found an increase in injury crashes in general in Colorado, Oregon, and California after recreational marijuana sales began. So Laura spoke to researchers who studied how people drive while under the influence of marijuana, and they found that many of them will slow down their speed to to compensate for their slower reflexes. And the researchers believe these drivers tend to have a higher awareness of their impairment than drunk drivers typically do. So then Laura looked at how weed sales affected alcohol sales. Turns out that alcohol sales tended to increase in states where pot is legal. It's largely driven by young adults from the ages of 18 to 26, and they were most likely to be white men without college education. However, there didn't appear to be any increase in binge drinking or heavy drinking. So take that for what it's worth. Now, when it comes to tax collection, In Ohio, we are expecting to collect up to $218 million on account of legalized recreational weed. That's based on what Ohio state researchers say we've seen in other states. By the fifth year, tax revenues could range between $336 million and $403 million. And indeed, when it comes to tax collections on weed, the the other states are putting up big numbers. Michigan collected more than $400 million in taxes after sales there hit $1.8 billion in 2022. In Illinois, their collections topped $450 million, and California collected $1.1 billion in taxes. Under Ohio's proposed law that that money could go to uh, it would go to local communities where these marijuana businesses are located, and they would pay for substance abuse and addiction resources, and then a cannabis social equity and jobs fund that would provide money for businesses and job creation for people in communities that are adversely affected by the war on drugs all these years. She so Laura also found some pretty high numbers of household pets. This that accidentally ingested edibles. This is an interesting kind of uh, side note on the story. The pet poison helpline is seeing a rapid increase in pet patients who have consumed THC. In the past five years, the in the U.S., there was a seven hundred percent increase in calls relating to marijuana consumption to the helpline. I, I feel like that sounds alarming, but I'd kind of like to see the actual numbers behind that because you know, from one to seven is a 700% increase. So, so I'm not sure what that is really telling us, but it's, it's interesting to know that, uh, that this is part of the, uh, part of the big picture. The increase in accidents is a bit distressing. I I guess the hardest part for police is there is no 
good test, no roadside test for sure. But even if, even if I take you back to the station for a blood or saliva test, you still have that discussion of how long does it still affect you in your system that you could test for it positive a week later, but is it having any impact on your ability to drive? And that seems like it's a big challenge. What they know is when they test it after there's an accident, they're seeing more people who have marijuana in their system than they saw before. Well, yes, because it's legal there and it lingers in your system. So obviously before it was legal, fewer people were using it. I mean, I just feel like this is just basic, you know, you're going to see that trend happen once you legalize it. I, I, you know, I know a lot of people who use it now, they could get into a car accident that has nothing to do with their marijuana use, but they might have it in their system because they used it a couple days ago. You know what I mean? Well, we know exactly, though, what the impairment is based on percentage of alcohol in your blood. I mean, there have been study after study, and how many television newscasters have we seen get drunk on the air and show what they can do and can't do as they get more and more alcohol in their blood? We don't have the same answer here. We don't know how long you remain impaired. Is, you know, is it, is it an hour after you use it? Is it six hours after you use it? 12 hours? And that's tough, right? If you're a police officer that thinks somebody's impaired because of this drug, how do you prove it? I mean, yes, that's a good point. No, it's very difficult. I can't. I don't know if there is going to be an answer to that. I think that I, I know that uh, that the doctors who are advising medical marijuana patients generally tell them that I think it's at like an eight-hour window where they say that you can expect to return to baseline after about eight hours. Now, of course, what's that based on, though? Uh, you know, experience. <laughs> I mean, many, many people using it and, and noting their experience. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not sure. I don't know why they, you know, there's no definitive uh, test that gives us the answer to that. You but, would think that by now there would have been a series of tests that you get a bunch of people, a hundred people together and you have them use it and then you have them do a bunch of motor tests every hour. Well, for... I think it sounds like the, the researcher that she spoke to was in a good position to do that. It would have been great to see if they, why did they not follow through to see how long that impairment lasted? That would have been, they had the perfect sample to, <laughs> they could have tapped into that. <laughs> The pet thing is strange because there are lots of substances in your house that can hurt your pet that you generally protect them from. I mean, chocolate is bad for dogs, but for some reason they're getting the, the weed and getting pretty sick. I mean, it sounds like in, in some cases that they have to bring them into the clinic to get fluids because they become dehydrated so badly. Right, right. You know, I still have a few more questions about, you know, one question that this story raised for me is whether whether tax collections will suffer as more states legalize weed. I mean, right now, many Ohioans go to Michigan to buy it. So I assume Michigan would see a drop in sales if Ohio legalizes it too. Don't don't you think that that will be the case? Yeah, although that's illegal. So um, yes, but Ohio okay. is not getting- <laughs> Yeah, you're right, Chris. No one's doing it. No, no one's doing it. <laughs> Ohio is not getting its piece of the pie. Ohio is going to realize a big sum of cat, 10% of the sales. That's going to be a lot of money that comes in. And the people that are arguing that it's not, I don't know what they're basing it on. The, the, the interesting thing was I would have thought alcohol sales would drop, but they have found, according to the story, that there are a bunch of especially younger people that are doing alcohol in moderate amounts with the weed, mixing the two. 
which that's interesting as well. Yeah, it is. Good story by Laura Hancock. It answers a lot of those questions. Check it out on cleveland.com. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We're going to stick with marijuana because one of the arguments being made by people opposed to legalizing it, it's that it's bad for your health. We know that smoking is bad, just like smoking cigarettes is bad. But what about the non-smoked forms, Lisa? Well, we really don't know a lot about the non-smoked forms of marijuana because there's not been a whole lot of research about it. It's really hard to determine the health risks because of this lack of studies. And there are so many different forms of marijuana. You can do tinctures, you can do oils, you can do edibles, you can smoke it. And dosages aren't standardized at this point. So Dr. Uma Donna Ballen, who's a Massachusetts family medicine and cannabinoid medicine specialist said there's a lot of misinformation out there. She said the body actually naturally produces many types of cannabinoids to regulate your appetite, your sleep, your stress, and your immune function. It also acts as a bronchodilator and a vasodilator, which means it opens up your airways and your blood vessels. And she says when it's used with a physician's guidance, there's no such thing as a lethal dose of marijuana. She says there's never been a single death from cannabis. But on the other hand, the uh, Centers for Disease Control say that Actually, you know, marijuana can increase the heartbeat and blood pressure immediately after use. It can lead to an increased risk of heart disease, heart attack, stroke, or other vascular conditions. They also say that smoking pot can damage your lung tissues and small blood vessels, but research is needed about the effects of secondhand marijuana smoke. The American Lung Association concurs. They say smoke from pot combustion is shown to have the same toxins and carcinogens as tobacco smoke. People inhale pot deeper and hold it longer, so that's a greater exposure. But Dr. Donna Ballon begs to differ. She says not all smoke is the same. She says the problem is there's no system that ensures that marijuana is free from contaminants that it picks up during the grow process. Like if it grows next to a highway, it's getting pollutants from the air or whatever. So she said clean cannabis doesn't cause lung disease. Columbia University researcher Ryan Sultan says in an interview with New Scientist magazine for an article called Why We Know So Little About Cannabis and Why Scientists Are Worried, he says, we don't know the appropriate doses, we don't know exactly what's in each type of marijuana, and we don't know the long-term health effects right now. Most research studies on pot have been done in just the last 20 years. I was fascinated by the idea that the the contaminants that are bad for your health are picked up from the environment and that if it's grown in a laboratory setting without any of those contaminants, they're saying that it doesn't affect you. It's one of the arguments for legalizing recreational marijuana is to give people a reliable source of safe marijuana. The big danger, of course, is fentanyl that gets mixed in and, and gives people uh, overdoses if they buy it on the street. But that was an interesting argument because they're saying smoking is okay for you. Uh, it, it, it's a, it, there's a lot of reefer madness arguments going on about how it's so bad for your health. I was really shocked that it raises 
your heart rate and your blood pressure because that's not the image that we have of marijuana. <laughs> marijuana is supposed to be the relaxant, right? Right, but it does have a bronchodilator and vasodilator function. And, you know, some people maybe with underlying heart conditions might be affected by this. But interestingly, a couple of interesting things. Um, Cannabis nursing is now a recognized specialty by the American Nurses Association. Also, I didn't know. I knew there was only one grow facility for researchers, but researchers now must get a license from the Drug Enforcement Administration and they can only use marijuana grown at a licensed facility. There used to be just one in Mississippi. Now there are eight licensed facilities. Very interesting. Good stuff. Check it out. It's on cleveland.com. You're going to be voting on this in five weeks. It's good information to have. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We had a terrifying run of violence and crime by a group called the Superior Boys, and we had a remarkable collaboration of law enforcement agencies to catch them. Corey Schaefer tells this story. Laura, what are some of the details? Yeah, we're talking about six different cities that came together to break this case and figure it out. And they they actually just had a recent break where they charged someone with murder in it. So a huge amount of just terrifying crimes happened for months and months where these gangs in, in a silver or gray Honda would pull up behind people and block them, whether they were in the ATM or in their driveway, so they couldn't get out and rob them and run away, drive away before the victims even knew what happened. And they were doing this three times in an hour in some cases. So detectives really needed to figure this out, right? They they succeeded suspected that there was some retaliatory gunfire that was involved with the gangs. And that's what recently happened. They charged um, two 18-year-old men and a adult for gunning down this guy named Jacobs in July 2022. But most of this happened from September to November of last year. And just, you know, it was like the TikTok Tavern in Lake or the Lakewood Cleveland border right there. And just all over the place, it seems like, you know, nothing and no one was safe because they were targeting anybody. Yeah. the the well, I wish we had some victims in this because I don't know that the, the terror of it truly comes through. And one of the victims was a couple and they pulled up in their near West side driveway. And immediately these guys were behind them so they couldn't get out and they come out with their guns drawn. They take them in the house, they pistol whip them, they rob them. How would you ever feel safe pulling Mm -hmm. into your driveway again? I mean, we've talked before that some people, I'm not going to mention names here, look in their back seats anytime they get in their car because they're petrified that someone's lurking to get them. Well, if you get pretty much pistol whipped in your home by guys like this, will you ever not feel traumatized again? And they were doing this over and over again, mm-hmm. just vicious attacks on people. All yeah, And you're right. It was all sides of the county. Plus they had a gang war going on that resulted, I guess, in some murders. Yeah, exactly. So this is, they, they only got the murder charge recently after they sent in the DNA to get swabbed, you know, to get uh, analyzed that they were able to break that case. The original break came through cell phones and they cracked those and got through um, all the messages that were going back and forth. But like we said, six cities had to work together. You know, there's we're talking about Cleveland Heights and Cleveland and the West Side. And um, they found a stash house on West 99th Street near Madison Avenue, got a search warrant. Then they found a trove of items stolen done from dozens of gun robberies. They The trash hadn't been taken out. So they actually found like a diamond wedding ring inside a house 
inside the trash. It was taken during a home invasion on Brookside Avenue. So they found social media accounts that saw the men posting photographs of themselves with the stolen items. And it's, it, it feels like, like Homeland, right? Where they had a board, where they had all of the pictures and all of the places and the string tied between. It's like, who's related to who? Um, somebody was still, you know, carried out an aggravated robbery after they'd caught a bunch of these guys in November. So yeah, it, it took a lot of work. Yeah, and they're morons. Obviously, you're a moron if you're taking pictures of you with your crime evidence and posting it. I mean, how dumb can you be? What I don't get is they did find a lot of the stolen stuff, including Mm -hmm. the diamond wedding ring in the trash. What's the point of stealing it if you're just going to throw it away? Was this more about a reign of terror and bragging rights than it was trying to get rich? Well, you got to wonder. I mean, one of the guys, two of the people they robbed was uh, high school classmates of this guy who called himself Dre. And it's like they recognized you. They know who you are. And so, yeah, maybe it's just like to show how cool you are that you can do this. I wonder the same thing about the carjackings, right? Because so many of those, the cars get left on the side of the road hours later. And if it's just joy rides, like uh, there's also this idea of the superior boys are a gang and they had to do these violent acts to prove themselves to get into the gang. Well, it feeds that idea that we hear all the time. A small number of people do the outsized mm-hmm. portion of the violent crime. They clearly have cleared up a bunch here. Well done. You're listening to today in Ohio. Cleveland voters will consider a change to the charter that would put a sizable chunk of money into the hands of citizens for budgeting decisions. This proposal does seem to have a lot of unworkable parts. Layla, what are they? Yeah, we're, we're talking about a lot of money in play here. It's 2% of the city's general fund, which at the moment would amount to about $14 million a year. And there's no getting around it because this would be an amendment to the charter. So it's if there's a tough year financially for the city, that doesn't mean the city gets a break from funding this program. So Courtney Estelfi took a look into the weeds of the thing to give us the most comprehensive and clear-eyed view we've seen yet. And she learned that While dozens of U.S. cities have used participatory budgeting over the last decade or so, they devote far less money to this kind of thing relative to their budget than Cleveland's 2% proposal. Even in huge cities, the average municipal investment in participatory budgeting is just 0.1%. Courtney also examined the argument that participatory budgeting creates more engaged citizens and improves voter turnout. That doesn't necessarily seem to be the case. The study that proponents like to use to shore up that argument shows an uptick in the likelihood that people will vote in elections after participating in PB, but that doesn't really translate into an increase in actual voter turnout. And in cities that have PB, about 1.3% of residents actually participated in the process. So the question is, you know, is it worth all of that money? And finally, There's the question of whether the general fund can actually handle the burden of this program. PB proponents say there are plenty of places where the money can come from, council members' discretionary money from casino revenues or the roughly $10 million annual payments for the football stadium, which that deal ends in 2028 as as long as we don't re-up it (laughs) and get ourselves into another jackpot. But those decisions are up to the mayor and council. And as for the rest of the budget, most of it is spent on personnel. And those are the people who carry out the city services that people rely on. 
So funding PB could mean layoffs, they say. And PB proponents suggested the city could avoid cuts by funding the PB process using future revenues from expected increases in tax receipts. But that money isn't a given, and inflation might mean it's already spoken for. Of course, you know, there's the possibility that the city used some of its debt capacity for capital projects to pay for whatever capital ideas come out of the PB process, but there's still the expectation that PB will pay for community programs, and that money has to come from somewhere. So those are some of like the overarching concerns, but then there are other questions about the wording of the amendment specifically that, you know, we can talk about if you'd like. Well, I I really wanted to like this idea. <laughs> I know, right? But- But it's really now you have to say it. This is terrible. It's a bad idea. It's poorly structured. It presents huge dangers for the future. And it doesn't meet the goal of increasing voting. So what's the point of doing it? And you do fall back on the idea that we elect the council and the mayor to do the budgeting. That's the process we use for the budgeting. And that's if people want to be involved, they can run for council. They could go to budget hearings. And I, again, I really wanted to like this idea. But after reading this and considering it, Cleveland should not do this. This will put the city into financial danger. It's not going to have any of the benefits that are needed. And like you said, there are wording problems with this. That You're creating an uncontrollable bureaucracy with this thing that we don't have that now. We have a controllable bureaucracy. There are checks and balances. The way this is drafted, there's no checks and balance. This could be a rogue runaway group with $14 million in their hands. Right, right. And you know, one of the most obvious uh, issues with the way it's worded is that it does not specifically require that the PB projects that get the most residents' votes are the ones that actually get funded and are completed. So when you read it, it it does appear to be the case. It does not spell that out. And the proponents sort of said, well, the whole point of it is to prioritize projects that residents decide and have popular support. So uh, we're sure that the city would just do the right thing and, and you know, fund the projects that, co- but it's not written into it. I, it's hard to believe that a lawyer would have looked this over and said, yeah, that there are no loopholes here. There, there's no problems with it. Um, you know, and also, you know, the PB Charter Amendment says that it would be exempt from spending rules that require council approval. But then there's this other charter section that's not affected by the PB Amendment that says contracts are void if those council spending rules aren't followed. And they're just sort of like, well, you know, we don't. Our lawyer says that that's not going to be a problem. <laughs> this it's just ripe for for legal. Uh, problems in the future. I'm sure this will be contested. And it could straightjacket the city. Look, since the city passed the extra income tax, it's been fairly flush with cash and then it got all of the pandemic money. But if history is any guide, the year will come where they're scraping. I mean, Frank Jackson, for most of his years as mayor, would fortify his budget with money he saved the year before because he didn't have enough money coming in to pay all the bills. And that was really robbing Peter to pay Paul every year, carrying it forward to the point where he couldn't do it anymore and ask for the tax. We'll get there again. And if this is in the charter, it can't be stopped. It's like automatically 2% of the budget goes into the hands of people who are not accountable to anybody. And it could hamstring the city. It's just a terrible idea. I mean, I, in reading it and paying attention, it became clear 
this should not happen. If the voters of Cleveland approve this, it's going to create a dangerous situation. You know, we, we've talked in the past about how uh, city council, how the city had that opportunity to use some of the ARPA money to put towards some kind of participatory budgeting experiment that would have been a show of goodwill to the people of Cleveland, give them a chance to to decide what projects they'd like. You know, that th- it would have been a great idea. Right, it would have been, been low dollar, you know, exposure. But we, I, this this kind of begs the question of because city council rejected that, and it was so offensive that they did that. That did this proposal, this extreme proposal that is permanent, did that did this emerge as kind of a way to force council's hand a little yeah. bit, and to, I, in the hopes that they would come to the table and compromise and eventually acquiesce to that to those wishes that that the people get to. And and it has backfired, and we're probably going to end up in a situation where fourteen million a year is going to be devoted to, uh, to this to this well, effort. Yeah, they wrote a terrible proposal as part of their negotiations, but now the voters will be voting on that proposal. So, let's see. You're listening to Ted in Ohio. Today is a big day for pop culture in Cleveland, and it's all about rising stars. Laura, what's the event? Who are the big names who will be here? And why is it so much money for people to attend? Because these are some really big names. And I am not familiar with every single person on this list because I am not under 30. So this is not meant for me. But we're talking about Grammy-winning artists Bad Bunny, Halsey, and Machine Gun Kelly. Uh, Kendall Jenner of the Kardashian family, who's a billionaire on her own right with her cosmetics. Rain Wilson, who's Dwight Schrute from The Office, which I watched when I was under 30, but has found an entirely new generation of fans. And comedian Matt Reif. And this is a three-year deal that Ohio gets this conference, and it's a partnership with Jobs Ohio. So I love that Jobs Ohio is trying to get young people to Ohio while the legislature is doing things that are probably turning it them away from Ohio. But yeah, it's like $3,000 to come from Sunday night to Wednesday. And all I can think is, I mean, maybe their companies are paying for some of these under yeah, 30s because- to go. Let's face it, people under 30 are strapped with gigantic college tuition bills and all sorts of other things that we've been reporting on the past few years. I just don't see how a lot of them can pony up $3,000 to go attend this convention. And what do they get for it? What do they get out of it? They get get to see Kendall Jenner. (laughs) (laughs) And there's a competition with uh, Bad Bunny with a $300,000 prize. That's a Latinx pitch competition. So I guess if you think you have a shot at getting that, your $3,000 investment could be worth it. But yeah, I mean, they're They've got all these big name entertainment people and then they've got like Beiju Shaw from uh, the GCP is going to be talking and the mayor is going to be talking. He says as the city's first millennial mayor, he's proud to host and participate in the celebration of next generation entrepreneurs and influencers. So, I mean, it's a big deal that it's in Cleveland. Yeah, it is. It is. It's and big names coming, a lot of attention. It's just I can't believe what they're charging. Maybe the company's paying. Maybe you're right. You're listening to Today in Ohio. This next question is for Layla, but before I get to it, I should salute Layla's husband. He's becoming our chief weather photographer at (laughs) Cleveland.com. He got pictures of the tree cutting the house in two a few months back, and over the weekend, he got pictures of the water spouts, which led to a story about how many we had. So thanks to Layla's husband. All right, Layla. Sweet. Oh, he'll be so pleased. (laughs) (laughs) That's so kind. If he listens to the podcast. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, uh, Marty, I salute you. I feel like I should put you on staff. 
<laughs> the UAW strike hit home for more Cleveland area workers on Friday. Layla, which ones and how? Yeah, Ford said late on Friday that about 1,800 of its workers had been laid off in addition to 7,900 employees who were on strike. The company said it has had to lay off workers because of the way the strike has halted production. And Ford confirmed Friday afternoon that 372 employees will be laid off at the Cleveland Engine Plant in Brook Park, effective Tuesday. Another 184 in total have been laid off at the engine plant in Lima. Earlier this week, 130 workers at General Motors' Parma Metal Center were laid off. UAW President Sean Fain addressed members in a video live stream on Friday, but he didn't announce any new strike locations. He said the union has been making progress with the big three automakers, Ford, GM, and Stellantis, because of the strike. It's been interesting to watch this strike evolve. When it first started, you saw the very the various pundits saying, oh, the union's washed up because the electric car is going to take away all their jobs and they're fighting for something that's not there. But the longer it goes and the more concessions they seem to be getting, you saw a whole different tenor this weekend of, of takeouts about how powerful the unions all seem to be now and getting much better deals then the companies thought that the workers have the upper hand for the first time in a long time. Uh, and it's interesting the way this strike is going, where it's only at targeted places, but it's having this effect where people are going to be out of work, not getting paid for a while while they bring this thing to, uh, to the ground. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We lost Lisa because climate change has given us so much rain. She's having to waterproof her basement, and they started jackhammering, so she cut out early. So we're going to finish early. That's it for the Monday episode. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, everybody who listens. We'll be back on Tuesday. <laughs>